This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wistron Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Today, I'm going to be joined by Christopher Gennady, who is a Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree UK Limited, a subsidiary of Wisdom Tree Investments, one of my longtime colleagues. Excited for him to be joining. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Richard affiliates. Uh, we're going to have a great show. We're talking with a author of a new book, uh, The Allocator's Edge, Phil Huber. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting discussion. But, Professor, we had Thanksgiving week off, so we didn't get your comments last week. But a lot's been happening. Uh, yeah. Another important employment report. A lot of interesting market reactions. So curious to get your, your latest take. Yeah. So, uh uh, first, let's go to this morning's employment report. I thought it was a strong report. Yes, the payrolls fell short, but uh, the household data was was just overwhelming. I mean, um, you know, over a million jobs created, um, uh, a tremendous increase in, in, in the workforce. It's, it, it is a big discrepancy. There's no question. And we've had, I, I think I heard on the news that it's the fifth or sixth biggest discrepancy between the two. But what is happening is people are coming back to the workplace in their, in, and, and, and in their own jobs, in their own gig jobs, in their own uh, starting their own companies. Um, uh, and they're not going back to the established companies. And uh, particularly the unemployment rate, uh, you know, falling um as, as it did, uh, you know, down to 4.2 percent, four-tenths of a percent. That was four times times uh, the drop that was expected. And by the way, that was confirmed by the underemployment rate, which is often looked at by economists, which also fell dramatically from 8.3 to 7.8. I mean, based, it, it's not quite back to the unbelievably low 3.5 percent that we had pre-pandemic, uh, uh, but it, it it's it's uh, rapidly approaching that. So uh, you know the fact that the payroll is reached is not going to change the the Fed. Now, finally, the Fed pivots. You know as well as I do. Yeah. I've been calling for the pivot for months. Uh, they are still way behind the curve, uh, but yet uh, you know they're they're talking about it. And uh, by the way, I, I think the, the sell off in the tech stocks that we see um, is uh, related to the fact that they know interest rates are going to go up. Yes, I know the 10-year, which is that great hedge, short-term hedge against it, is is still holding in there, but the short-term rates are going up, and they're probably going to go up a lot more than are even now discounted in the market. Yeah, I was wondering what I know you've been saying that when they had to price the Powell pivot, they might drop as much as 10 percent. And it was like a very volatile week this week. It was up and down and going back and forth. But it seemed like they they were just moved right beyond it uh, until today's employment report, which it seems like they are pricing something else in today here. Yeah. Well, I think it was, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction on the you know, bond market was, oh, it's a weak report. But then you saw the bonds 
uh, yield going up afterwards when people said, no, this is not a, a weak report. Now, what's happened right now in the afternoon is that, you know, the, the bonds, as they always do, catch a bid when the stock market sells off. I mean, this is this is classic and they're, they're catching a bid right now. But, you know, what we are going to get, I think, when this is over is an inverted curve. We could get the short end, uh, you know, at four uh, percent. The the long bond, you know, does stays around two. Well, wow. um, yeah. I mean, I think we're going to have inversion. I think um, uh, inversion is going to be much more common in in years to come um, for for various reasons. But that's basically. Don't forget. I mean that 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 is a big difference. You know, don't think it's just the tenure. I mean, if you can get four or five percent in your savings account, you know, the mean stocks and the free money and all that, that goes away. By the way, financials will do real. They don't need the tenure to go up. They just need the short rate to go up because it's a short rate that determines, the, you know, the, the spread between their deposits, which are, you know, yielding almost zero and will move up very slowly, and their loan rate, which is going to move up right with the Fed. I mean, so they, they could make uh, good profits out of just the short rate goes up. Don't just focus on that long rate. I, and I, I think what's happening, the fact that with the uh, Omicron variant of the, the Fed, is no one has come out there and said, oh, my, my goodness, maybe we should not tighten. Uh, no, no one has said that, uh, the, uh, you know, Powell's softening you up because um, unless something really shocking happens, you know, between now and December 15th, there's no question that we're going to have an acceleration of that and a, 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 a press conference, I think, uh, on that 15th, that's going to be uh, the most hawkish uh, uh, conference that uh, Jay Powell has ever led. Well, well, I know who the next Fed guest we're trying going to have to try to get on. Uh, we've been talking about getting Bullard back on. He is afraid of that inversion of the curve from the last few times we talked to him. Yeah. So I'm going to be curious it, to get It's going to be more common and won't be quite as scary as it is before. Um, but it, it is absolutely true. Inversion of the curve has been one of the most, and I've you know, lectured on this for decades, the most reliable index of, uh, you know, to, of, of the next recession. But I think with the long bond being such the hedge and people just buying it, we're going to have depressed long rates for a long time. And as a result, we're going to see a lot more inversions and a lot more inversions that are not necessarily going to be followed by uh, any uh, uh, recession. And, and yes, I, you know, maybe after the meetings in January, uh, I, would, I would love to get, to get uh, uh, Jim back on here on our yeah. program. How one of the, one of the listeners listening in just now just said, "How long do you think before it takes to get to four percent?" No, it depends a lot on how in inflation we're going to see the inflation numbers exactly a week from today on December tenth. I think they're going to be hot. I think they're going to be hot through January. They're going to be supported to be hot, um, and um, you know people are going to just say. Uh, um, you know, you know, the, 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 uh, the Taylor rule, which is that old rule that, you know, that John Taylor almost became Fed chair, uh, used to, to judge where the Fed rate should be given inflation and unemployment. Uh, it, it now is calling for a 6% funds rate. Now, I think that's an overestimate because I think real rates have declined. But even if you drop 2% from that, you get a 4%. <laughs> um, when that could happen, um, it, 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 it's hard to see, you know, maybe just the, the scare of the Fed, you know, saying it's going to move up a lot might 
cool the equity markets enough and the commodity markets enough that they can hold off a little bit on it. But, you know, again, what I want to see is a slowdown in that money growth. We did not, we have not gotten it. It cannot continue to grow at double-digit rates. So he's got to raise rates enough to stop spending and loan creation to lower money supply growth back to 5 to 6% if he wants to get back to a 2 3% inflation rate. All right, Professor. I mean, this is a great way to kickstart the show. Thanks for some commentary to kick us off here. You've been uh, yeah, a lot of we'll, spot-on we'll, commentary. We'll next week. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to turn the conversation over. So reintroducing, we have uh, my, one of my colleagues, Chris Gennady, Global Head of Research in, in Wisdom Tree Europe here. Uh, but a return guest to the program, friend of the program, Phil Huber, uh, CIO of Savant uh, Wealth Management. Uh, and Phil is out with a great new book, The Allocator's Edge, uh, A Modern Guide to Alternative Investments and the Future of Diversification. Uh, Phil, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Uh, the last time we did this in Sirius's headquarters in New York, if I have that correct. Right. Yeah, it was about, I think, like three years ago. And we, you and I were in the uh, MLB, uh, Major League Baseball Radio, High Heat Studio, if I remember the name of it correctly. And uh, it, it was fun to, to be with you in person, but we're in the world we're in now, so we're doing it remotely. And uh, I'm excited to be back. Downgrade from in person in the studio to the team's chat. Um, well, tell us. So, how did you um, get, come to write the Allocator's Edge? So, you guys do a lot of work uh, across all sorts of parts. What 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 motivated you to sit down and write this book? Yeah. So, um, just to, for context, so um, I'm the CIO for Savant Wealth Management. We are a uh, RAA based in Illinois. And so we do a lot of asset allocation work on behalf of our clients and, and building them multi-asset portfolios that serve to meet their financial goals. And so we have, you know, three buckets, like, like many do, of, of stocks, bonds, and alternatives uh, inside of our, our mix. And what I found over the years was that, you know, despite being the more modest part of the allocation, much of the questions that our advisors and our clients had around the inner workings of the portfolio really centered on that, that suite of alternative strategies that we were using. And so um, that's kind of what compelled me to write the book was that I, I felt that there was, you know, despite the growth of alternatives, both in the institutional world and in the wealth management world, there's still, I think, an education gap that was worth uh, looking to try to help to fill um, by taking a deep dive into the why, uh, what, and how beyond, uh, behind investing in alternatives. So that, that was the inspiration for the book. Uh, you know, it's really written, I would say, say, you know, geared towards the, you know, financial advisor uh, or professional allocator type. But I, I, I wanted to write in a way that had some applicability to individual investors as well. So hopefully, um, you know, the book, uh, uh, you know, carries across a number of different audiences. But I kind of wrote, wrote it from that firsthand experience yeah. of working directly with the advisors at our firm. Yeah, you know it's interesting. We do a lot of model portfolios ourselves at Wisdom Tree, and I and and I think our our asset allocation model team would say the alternatives oriented models we have something called volatility management probably generates the most outsized conversation of any model that we have <laughs> and so it's very it's very uh symbolic of, of what you just said it's it's interesting yeah and i think and I, and I think it's 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 questions and comments that come up not necessarily because the the advisors and clients don't want alternatives it's just these are areas that are a bit more novel or, or foreign to them and and things that you know, clients might not be accustomed to owning. And so it's harder for them to kind of 
understand the inner workings and be able to properly set expectations. And so ultimately, I think that's where there, there is a desire to learn more and get better acclimated because, you know, as we all know, rates are, are extremely low and, and the the ability for a, a classic 60-40 type for portfolio to do the heavy lifting that it's done in the past couple of decades, it, it's an uphill battle and, and the math is the math. And so I think, you know, we need to either need to ratchet down our return expectations, you know, pretty substantially, or we need to get a little bit creative in how we think about uh, building portfolios going forward. Yeah, why don't you summarize where you see the traditional 60-40, what it's been able to do historically, what you think it could do in the future, and how that differs from the general client expectations? Big question. Sure. I mean, I mean, I think um, it, it's hard not to, as an investor, to anchor to, to recency bias and, and extrapolate recent returns into the future. And so I think that's a big reason as to why there's been a, a bit of hesitation to sort of move away from that, that classic 60-40 for a lot of people because it's served investors well. It's delivered, you know, pretty meaningful returns, call it, you know, high, high you know, single digits, close to 10 per, percent for a long period of time. Um, and, and it's a very intuitive portfolio to own. I think everyone understands stocks for growth, bonds for defense and income and stability, and, and those two asset classes having a diversifying way of offsetting each other, and, and so you kind of balance them in such a way that you still get that long-term growth, but with some risk management and diversification built in. So that intuitiveness of that portfolio is, is, is there. And then there, it, it comes with a very much an ease of implementation. You can you know, really quickly build a 60-40 portfolio with a one to three funds and do it very cheaply and tax efficiently. So the the ability to implement it, the intuitiveness and the historical experience are, are again, all reasons why it's no surprise that there's been hesitation to move away from it because we, we tend to stick with things that have treated us well. The challenge really lies more on the 40 side uh, in the sense that, you know, a big reason that the 60-40 performance as a whole has done so well is that um, 20, 30 years ago, you know, yields were significantly higher and yields are, you know, pretty explanatory of the, the vast majority of your returns you're going to get in bonds. If you look at just your starting yield, that's going to probably explain 90% or more of your, your forward-looking 10-year return for core bonds. And so right now that math is telling us that we're probably looking at, you know, after you factor in inflation and fund expenses and all those things and taxes potentially, you know, you're, you're, you're back to zero if not negative. And so that, that piece is challenging in the near term. Um, and then the diversification benefits are not necessarily written in stone. We, we've, you know, the the most recent, you know, couple of decades where we've grown accustomed to that negative correlation of stocks and bonds, where you, you count on bonds to do well when stocks are doing poorly. That's not necessarily been the case throughout all of history. We have seen regimes, economic regimes, where particularly when you see high and rising inflation, that's the type of environment that could see bonds and stocks go down in concert where you don't necessarily get that diversification benefit. So it is it is a, a, a relationship that's that's a bit, you know, more fluid than most people uh, think. And, and as we've seen, inflation has started to tick up quite a bit, uh, not to say that it's here to stay permanently, but I think we need to be mindful of that risk um, and, and build portfolios to account for that. And then, and then the same goes for the, the you know, the realized um, – equity risk premium. Again, that's not a free lunch. I know, you know, all of us here, I think, are believers in stocks for the long run, but, but you know, definitely not necessarily from a single country standpoint. We've seen a handful of examples through history where long, long periods have passed where, where equity markets have underperformed cash or T-bills or some sort of risk-free rate. So, again, it, you know, stocks and bonds definitely still deserve their place as kind of core building blocks for a portfolio. 
and serve different purposes, but we, we've seen the emergence and growth of a whole host of different asset classes and strategies that are now more accessible to a broader array of investors that um, just give, a, give us a, a, a greater toolkit with which to build. As you all think about building these alternatives into portfolios, is there a, and I know everyone has to be customized to their own suitability requirements and how you think about it, but if, if you were to think from a 60-40 investor perspective, what would be a typical thing and sort of the type of person who you would put to uh, this, whatever the sort of, I would say the standard allocation to alternatives would be? Yeah, I mean, I think you want to look for a, an ensemble of different strategies that have higher expected returns than bonds, maybe not you know high, as high expected returns as stocks, somewhere in between. But things that are diversifying have low to modest correlations to both stocks and bonds, and things that have um, an intuitive risk premium story associated with them. Things that you you know there, there's a, a economic you know risk based or, or behavioral reason as to why you should expect to make money in that strategy over time, as, as well as a history of, of, of it actually doing so. And so when we look across that sort of spectrum, now we, we have different mixes of alternatives depending on someone's preferences around, you know, liquidity and things like that. Um, but within the 40X space, there's a variety of different mutual funds or ETFs or uh, a different type of fund structure called interval funds that allow for different types of alternatives. So at Savant, the, the, the five categories that we currently allocate to as part of our, our kind of core alts mix are uh, trend following or, or otherwise known as managed futures, um, reinsurance, catastrophe reinsurance, event-driven, uh, direct lending, and real assets. Those are our five our five buckets right now. And do, and when you do something like that, does it tend to be equally allocated against those five buckets, or is there one that's sort of more interesting than the other? You know, it, we don't play favorites too much. Again, if for something that if you have five you know categories and that's you know ten to twenty percent of someone's allocation, it's hard to get too cute with the the weighting and the mix of those. So I think, you know, equal, it's certainly a good starting point. We have a little bit of a bias towards the things that have less, you know, market beta and, and more reliability when it comes to um, the, the potential to outperform in stressed markets. And so uh, a little bit of an extra, you know, tilt towards something like managed futures uh, that tends to do well in prolonged bear markets or something like reinsurance that, that's just structurally uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. Um, so those go slightly higher away, but generally speaking, they're all they're all in the same ballpark. Let me reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Phil Huber, the CIO of Savant, on his new book, The Allocator's Edge. We have Chris Gennady, Global Head of Research at, at Wisdom Tree. Chris, do you want to jump in? I've been dominating the questions here so far. Uh, so ultimately, Phil, I, uh, I was curious uh, because, you know, so far we've been talking about you, you take in the client situation, you look at their individual scenario, but obviously everyone listening, uh, Jeremy, myself, you, we're, we're all sort of captive in the current experience. The current experience being, one, we heard from the professor, he expects inflation to be hot, inflation is heating up. So you're, you're barraged all the time, whether it's on Twitter, podcasts, the news. And you sit there, and I'm, I was just wondering, you were talking about building the portfolio. Are you building with sort of all of these eventualities, pandemics, inflation going up in mind? Or are you adjusting? And are your clients coming to you and saying, you know what, with inflation so high, we should shift over here. We should do this or we should do that. How active are you getting in a year like this where seemingly so much unexpected stuff is happening? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the way we're big believers in diversification is the best defense against an unknown future. And so our, our you know, our, our, you know, crystal ball is as cloudy as anybody's. Um, so we're not making very, you know, pronounced forecasts around what we think inflation is going to be, you know, because I think there's just no, no one has a real good track record or history of being able to predict that with any sort of, you know, consistent accuracy. So for us, it's all about, hey, there, there's a lot of different, you know, paths that we could take economically in the markets. We want to be prepared and have exposure to assets that, that can perform well in a variety of different types of, of market environments, not just bet, you know, the farm on one potential outcome. And so I think that's a part of it. So, we, you know, it, that does mean it does lead us to incorporating some inflation sensitive, you know, components to the portfolio. But that's not us making a huge bet on inflation. It's just saying, hey, this is a, a risk that's in the market and we want to have some preparation for that. Uh, but we also want to, you know, own strategies that the 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 future performance isn't predicated on you know hyperinflation. Like there had you know you would you would expect it to still make money over time even if we go back to more normal inflationary environment. I was wondering. I I, I thought of something as I was going through the book, um, Phil, and I'm I'm curious to to get your take on how you would approach it because essentially, take something like gold. So gold mm-hmm. might be a real asset. But in theory, you could hold, you know, the physical metal somehow, exchange traded product or other means. Or back, you could say, back, wait right? a second. <laughs> All right, wait a second. You could go in uh, the direction of, say, gold miners. And at different points in the economic cycle, and because you have a lot of segments like that. You know, you talk about timber and you've got, like, people using the timber, companies, they may pay dividends that use the timber. Or you could just hold the timber. You could have companies that run the farm, or you could just hold the farmland. So I'm, I'm curious how you approach a decision like that, where you've got sort of these interesting things. Should you be thinking of the company and the shares and the dividends, or should you say, I want to actually hold the real asset itself? I mean, I think over time, the, the real assets themselves are going to be more diversifying. And I think where maybe there would be a, a preference for things like, say, farmland or timberland is that those assets produce cash flows um whereas whereas with gold it's it's a little you know a little different so i think the the track record of gold is a, a strategic holding for for from our perspective is a bit mixed and so we don't recommend or hold gold as a strategic allocation i think gold could be a, a heck of a trade at times but you know we're looking for things that we want to you know buy to buy to own and buy to have as, as a long-term holding and so i you know for us i think the 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 volatility of gold the the uncertain diversification benefits and the lack of cash flows it just it doesn't we don't view it as, as a particularly attractive asset class uh, but things like you know farmland or infrastructure or timberland assets that you know they, they have you know direct or and or indirect inflation uh, characteristics and there's a high degree of cash flow and a little bit more stability to to us that's a bit more attractive as a diversifier. And and you you mentioned infrastructure, so that that was another um, thing that that was in the book. And obviously, the book gets published, or the words get written, and your hands are on the keys before 2021. And obviously, you can't go anywhere in the U.S. these days uh, without hearing about the infrastructure plan and build back better, and and all these uh, you know mantras from the Biden administration. So, if, does what's going on have any impact? on either the opportunities or types of infrastructure, or is it mostly steady as she goes and what you've been giving your clients in terms of infrastructure exposure for the last five years is more or less the same, even though in every other headline we're hearing about infrastructure by virtue of what's happening in 2021? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, our, our our inclusion of that asset class was not, you know, wasn't something we introduced this year as a result of the um, all the plans around infrastructure. And, it's, and, and we, even if we looked at back to the prior administration, there was the running joke that like every week was like infrastructure week because there was all this talk about, you know, an infrastructure plan and nothing really ever came to fruition. I, but there's clearly a global need, not even just in the U.S., but globally for um, continued investment in, in, in various infrastructure categories. Um, you're, you're seeing more more of an emphasis on renewable energy areas uh, these days as well, uh, and digital infrastructure. But yeah, I think for us, it's, again, these, these are kind of the essential assets that help us run society and our economies. And so uh, there, there's a, a, a sort of a, a um, you know just an essential component or, or reason to own them, and, and they they can be you know stable and cash flowing and, and have you know, inflation-linked uh, uh, characteristics. And so for us, it's, it's really, you know, it's not predicated on le- legislation. It's just that there, there's a, you know, a diversifying element in a, in a large and growing need for this asset class to, you know, continue economic development and growth. One of the things we we're seeing, it seems, across the industry as well is you, you mentioned, obviously, the focus on renewables, which certainly comes up as a part of Build Back Better. But uh, f- physically, I sit... Uh, in Europe at the moment, and huh? you, you can't you can't do anything in Europe that is not you know sustainability minded, ESG oriented. Whether it's equities, you've now got things like green bonds. I'm I'm curious as if as you're looking at the alternative space, and I, I figure it might be represented in venture capital, private equity, things like that, where you know you see the headlines. You know, Bill Gates and George Soros are investing in a fusion power startup, and you're sitting there going, "Wow, sounds cool," but I don't, I don't know if it'll ever be profitable. But so you've got like the big headlines related to that type of investment. But you know, you're you're operating in the in the regular world, you know, not the world with the hundred billionaires. Are you doing anything differently? Or are your clients coming to you saying, "Given everything that's going on, I want." alternatives focused on decarbonization as one example i you know we're, we're seeing clients that are interested in sustainability and and renewable energy but not necessarily as hey i want to implement this in some sort of alternative vehicle you know be it private equity or a venture startup it's more hey is there other ways within my public markets equity sleeve or in my bond sleeve that i can uh become a more you know environment environmentally conscious you know shareholder and investor. And so, again, kind of back to like what we view as the core building block alternatives, the things you tend to see more focused on renewables tend to be more in the equity space, whether public or private. And so uh, it doesn't, so that specifically doesn't come up a lot as it pertains to alternatives. Um, but, but like, like, like any RA, we are, you know, I think as, as public awareness becomes more uh, pronounced around the, the different ways that you can employ ESG considerations in a portfolio, you know, we're going to, you know, and, and we're going to see increased demand for it. So it's not a huge part of what we do today, but, you know, as, as product development evolves and, and, and just uh, uh, awareness uh, continues to grow, that'll, you know, seemingly continue to be a trend. But, um, you know, I'm not, I don't view that as necessarily something particularly specific to the alternatives that we, that we do. We have our guest for the hour, Bill Huber, CIO of Savant Wealth Management. And Professor Siegel was on earlier. He said... On the short end of the yield curve, we're going to be seeing 4% uh, rates in the future. He didn't exactly define how long it would take us to get there, um, but I I hope soon uh, because that's exciting certainly uh, for me and all the rest of us with savings accounts. But, but Phil, uh, 
while we wait for 4% short-term interest rates, uh, what are some strategies? I know in the book you've uh, referenced uh, something called the catastrophe bonds and other types of uh, maybe uncorrelated market uh, lending, which could create an income stream in a portfolio that's maybe uncorrelated and could tide us over until rates are higher. Yeah, I mean, first off, I think I, I won't hold my breath for that 4% uh, short-term rate. Otherwise, I might pass out because it, it'll probably take a while and probably probably smart of Professor Siegel to not specify a specific time frame on, on that happening. But, yeah, I think um, you know, clearly there's a, there's a need for, for, you know, sustainable income for many investors that are entering or near retirement. Um, and, and it's a lot tougher to, to get that these days. And so the challenge is how, how do we – you know, generate responsible income without um, really overstepping when it comes to risk. Because as we all know, higher yields, you know, they're, they're not free lunches. They're, they're, they're compensating you for bearing risk. And so the higher the yield, uh, the, the, the higher the perceived or, or assumed risk should be. So that being said, there, there are a handful of categories that um, are, are offering, you know, again, more, more substantial income components than uh, what we can get from treasuries or, or high-grade corporates today. And so uh, the book has a whole chapter on a whole category called insurance-linked securities, uh, and this is essentially a risk premium related to catastrophe reinsurance. Uh, and one one uh, type of uh, ILS or insurance-linked security is a catastrophe bond. Uh, and I think that's a really compelling diversifier. What's you know it, it's structurally untethered to stock and bond markets, which is you know I think quite attractive because we've we've talked a lot on here about inflation and interest rates and stock market valuations. And the nice thing for cap bonds is um, there is no interest rate sensitivity. There's no credit risk. There's no, you know, stock market risk. You're just, you're, you're getting, you're, you're taking on a completely different risk premium. And so that type of uh, non-correlation is really hard to come by. And so when you can access it, I think it can be really, you know, valuable to, as, as a diversifier to a portfolio. And so, you know, the, the, the reinsurance industry has existed for centuries. This is nothing new. It's really more investors' ability to access it that's that's a bit more uh, becoming more more mainstream today. And so I refer to this in in the book as one uh, example of something that's a bit of a old wine in a new bottle, and and that the um, ability to incorporate things like like cap bonds or other types of of ILS in a portfolio, you can do that actually through mutual funds or through interval funds. You don't have to go into a hedge fund or or or, or buy the, the publicly traded stocks of reinsurance companies. There's actually a more direct way to get uh, kind of that pure access to the asset class. So that that's one one uh, uh, example. There's other types of areas within private debt, you know, middle market direct lending, uh, marketplace lending, other types of niche credit that, that again, are becoming a little bit more uh, you know, widely available through advisors um, and through uh, the interval fund structure, where you don't necessarily have the liquidity constraints that come with uh, uh, mutual funds or ETFs. And, and Phil, just just out of curiosity, I know uh, this this year we had uh, numerous uh, hurricanes, uh, and hurricanes, of course, are one one type of uh, catastrophe that uh, that might uh, apply here. I'm uh, just just out of curiosity. I mean, as as people have these things in their portfolio, and you have a year where let's say there's a significant number of hurricanes, uh, is is that like is the way to think of it for those of us less familiar that the way the security works? Not that people are rooting for hurricanes by any means, but uh, the way the security works is in a year where you have a lot of them, or an earthquake, or something else. You're, you're going to get the payout, and you're going to share in a certain payout related to the security 
And because the disaster itself is not correlated to anything, uh, that's why you've got well, no, actually, ri- no normal risk. Yeah, actually, the, the opposite. You're going to do you're, you know you're going to do more poorly when you have uh, year, years of a higher degree of. Uh, I reversed it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so. <laughs> Those years when you're when you're paying a lot of attention to the weather channel, it's likely going to be the years that, that you're not doing as well on reinsurance. We know from history, we don't, we don't know exactly what those years are going to be in advance. The ones that are that have a handful of, of major, you know, category three, four, or five hurricanes that make landfall, uh, or, or the ones that are a bit more more benign in nature. And so that's the risk you're bearing. And so you know you you are going to have occasional down years. The interesting, you know, part of the asset class is that it resets every year. Every year, you know. Uh, Premiums are, are kind of renegotiated and, and renewed, and so when you follow a, a handful of bad loss years, you know premiums tend to go up, and so that increases your expected return for future years. So, you know, definitely an asset class you want to think of as a long-term holding, and not just something you want to try to time year in year out. But but over a long period of time, and there, there's an index representative of the cap on space called the Swiss Re Global Cap Bond Index. It's, it's been around since the early 2000s, and, and historically it's delivered high single-digit you know returns. Uh, you know, relatively low volatility and, and, and you know, uh, pretty pretty meaningful diversification benefits to stocks and bonds. So it kind of hits all the check boxes you want from a diversifier, but that doesn't mean that you, you know, can't have, have bad years. The key is sticking with it through those bad years because that, that tends to lead to higher expected returns as rates renew themselves and, and go higher. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the, the typical perils are going to be your things like hurricanes and, and earthquakes and you know, European windstorms and Japanese typhoon or, or, or wildfires and things like that. So, um, you know, the, 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 the risk has to be priced appropriately. And that's what, you know, again, if you're for the uh, reinsurers themselves, they're hiring, you know, climate scientists and, and catastrophe modeling, you know, software that they're, they're spending millions of dollars on because they, they want to be able to underwrite this risk effectively so that they're being compensated for the risk that they're bearing. Um, but, so, but so I appreciate it because I was uh, obviously obviously my understanding was flipped. I, I inverted my. Yeah, uh, you're, my you're, not betting, you're not betting or hoping on large <laughs> catastrophic events, and, and it's also too like you could have a, a busy hurricane season, but it might not make a difference return-wise because it's not necessarily you know the activity in the ocean necessarily, but it's, it's are there major category three, four, five hurricanes? Are they making landfall, and are they making landfall in densely populated areas with a high degree of insurable? you know, uh, property around them. And so you could have a major, you know, hurricane hit, but if it, if it lands in the middle of nowhere, um, that might not necessarily be a bad thing for the reinsurance industry. Whereas as the one we saw earlier this year in New Orleans, that did cause a high degree of damage. And so, you know, it really depends on, 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 you know, not just the size and, and power of the hurricane, but where is it making landfall and what kind, what kind of insurable damage is it causing? So I know Jeremy is, uh, Gonna, he's, he's got a few uh, further questions. I've been dominating now, so Jeremy, hey, take it away. Back, there he is. Back and forth. Um, so, so, Phil, you know, one of the things when you first started talking about the different categories of strategies, um, and you mentioned what are the real alternatives that could be a diversifier is, is sort of trend following. Um, trend following had a tough run for a while. Um, as you think about the strategies with trend following, have you thought about what makes up a, a strategy you like? Like, what are the compositions? Because you can do trend following in all sorts of assets. And and do you see the dynamic now? I mean, last year or maybe this year, the last 12 months has been a much better environment for trend following. I'm curious if you think that's persisting and lasting or, or, or what's your what's your sense? Yeah, so I think first off, what attracts 
people historically to something like managed futures, which is how we we employ trend following, is over you know dozens of different asset classes. Um, in that you know history has shown us that when you have those really significant long bear markets, not the not the quick ones like the you know March of 2020 or some of the other really short you know pullbacks we've seen, you know trend following may not do well in those types of pullbacks where it's just, you know, a, a buy the dip type thing and you're back off to the races. But when you have an 08, 09 situation or a, or a, you know, kind of tech bubble situation where it's potentially a multi-year bear market, you know, again, that's when trends can really start to, you know, gain, gain strength and, and, and trend following strategies can do quite well. And so if you look historically at the worst quarters for the S&P 500, you see a pretty good, you know, reliability of managed futures providing not only generally better relative performance, but in many cases, absolute positive performance when it, exactly when you want diversification the most. And so it has been challenged in the past decade because it's just been a, a kind of a bull market environment typically of not a lot of sustaining trends, a lot of different kind of whipsaws happening and um, a lot of buy the dip type type moments. So there, we haven't really had that really prolonged drawdown that, that's been able to show the asset class, um, you, know, you know, doing what you're, you're effectively hiring it to do. But Again, it's kind of thinking of it in the context of each asset in the portfolio uh, having a role, playing a playing a different position. If you're thinking of it, you know, in the lens of of like a sports team, like you want to have a, De- a Dennis Rodman type on on the court, even if he's not gonna, you know, put up you know twenty thirty points for you. So it, you know, it's meant to be a diversifier, and it's meant to provide that diversification. You know, really when you when you need it and want it the most. Is there a sub-asset class that you think it works the best in, in, in within within the different places, between equities, commodities, currencies, interest rates, or any challenges as you've done sort of the research on, on different managers that, that you focus on? I mean, a lot of the data and research that we've looked at and read has really supported the notion that trend following has worked across asset classes and had positive sharp ratios in, in all those areas, whether it be, you know, currencies, commodities, rates, you know, equities. So I think, you know, the best bet there is to do it in a highly diversified fashion and um, not just, you know, trend follow one asset class or one sub asset class, but, but really try to take advantage of the breadth of, of asset classes that you can apply it to through futures contracts and, um, and, and try to, again, the other component is when, again, back to those environments where trend following does best is you, you tend to see trends across the board in, in rates. And it's not just, you know, you're, you're not, you're not just taking advantage of being short equities. You're, you know, t- taking advantage of being potentially, you know, long the dollar or long U.S. interest rates or long certain or short certain commodity complexes. So I, I think that that breadth of diversification you can get through it through a, a managed futures type allocation is, is your friend. Uh, and so you don't want to focus it too heavily in one, one area. Uh, I know you, uh, you, Cliff Athens wrote the forward to the book, uh, and so I know you've you've done a lot of work with Cliff and the AQR team. As you think mm-hmm. about diligence of different groups, uh, are are there anything else you would say that's important to your team as you as you look at the different types of alternative strategies out there? Any you know particular things you'd want to highlight as, as from the diligence perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know analyzing products and funds from from alternative asset managers versus, you know, looking at a large cap growth like index fund. It's a, it's a little bit of a different animal when it comes to the, the diligence process, and there's a lot more moving parts. And so I think you have to have a, a good team and a good process internally, whether you're an RA or some other, you know, uh, allocator is, is making sure you've got the, the personnel and capabilities to really dig deep into alternatives and, and ask the right questions and 
Um, also understand that, that when you're entering the space of alts, um, you're going to, you know, inevitably the, the costs are higher than what you find in stock and bond funds. Um, and so I think it, it's more about thinking about it, not like, hey, do I go out and find the lowest cost provider, which a lot of people try to do for their, you know, large cap core allocations. Hey, give me the cheapest beta I can find. That's not necessarily the best way to go about it in in alternatives. There's a, there's a high degree of craftsmanship that can come with you know, building and developing a strategy and executing on it. You know, fees are certainly important. You know, all else equal, you want to pay lower fees, but I think it's just a little bit more nuanced when it comes to alternatives that you know you're going to be paying up a little bit, but you want to make sure that you're, you know, doing enough diligence and analysis to be comfortable with the fees you're paying relative to the expected benefit that you're going to get. So I think, you know, you want to talk to managers that have, a, a you know, a great deal of experience and history managing these strategies, whether it be in liquid or, or private formats, you don't want to, you know, I think there's plenty of asset managers in the early 2000s that kind of tried to get into the liquid alts game because it seemed like the hot place to be, and it was it was a big buzzword, and so it was kind of like every fund complex in the world was launching liquid alt funds, even if they didn't necessarily, you know, have any experience doing so. So I think a lot of those got sort of washed out as as the popularity died down for for a bit. So I, I think it's it's really just understanding the the manager and their ex- their internal expertise and and what they're trying to deliver and your confidence in their ability to execute on it. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking to Phil Huber, CIO Savant Wealth Management, about his new book, The Allocator's Edge, that gives his rundown of the the alternatives ecosystem, a lot of unique mapping of the ecosystem. Um, so, t- Phil, the the um, you know one of the the questions that I I have is is and and a lot of recent research has come out uh, on how you can uh, some of our friends in the industry. I think you've been following some of the research on return stacking and sort of adding these additional diversifying returns on top of them. Uh, and, and so some of this nature is well, ha- where do you? I think one of the hardest questions that people would get historically in, in alternative allocations is well, where do you fund it from? Do you stock, right. take it from stocks? Do you take it from bonds? Your point was somewhere in between the two of what you're looking for. I guess as you thought about where you fund it from without return stacking, where do you do that? And then does some of this return stacking, how, how do you, uh, how have you followed along on that, that new research? Yeah, I've, I've definitely been following along with it. You know, Corey uh, Hofstein, our, our mutual friend, was one of the authors of, of that paper, along with the, the folks at Resolve, and that you know got got a lot of attention in, in terms of what they were presenting on there. And Corey was actually one of the, the contributors and endorsers of the book. And so I, I think it's going to become a, a more important topic as alts gain more um, kind of track records and popularity with advisors, and they think about how do I introduce them without necessarily introducing a ton of tracking error to the portfolio. You know, benchmark that I might be tethered to, um, and, and obviously we've seen like you know from from you guys and some of the strategies that you uh, run and others that are becoming uh, that are, that are bringing product to market that that's allowing advisors to build portfolios that that take advantage of capital efficiency in their stock and bond sleeves to effectively open up portfolio real estate for other diversifying strategies where where you're still getting that kind of basic. Um, building, you know, a block of a 60-40 type exposure, uh, but you don't necessarily need to commit $100 to get $100 of exposure. You might necessarily only need to do, you know, 60 to $70 to get that 100 and then you're kind of freeing up a little bit through the use of leverage to, to allocate to some other areas, some of the diversifiers that I've I've written about in the book. And so I think that's going to be a continued topic of research for us at Savant that we, you know, explore in the coming year. And I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of where you think about whether you're using capital efficiency or not, you know the the decision on 
not just what alternatives to use, but where to take them from is, is of, of high significance. Because, yeah. um, you know, if you're taking it all from bonds, then, then you're likely introducing more volatility, um, more potential downside risk, just given that, you know, as compelling as some alternatives are, you know, they're not without risk and they can, you know, fluctuate and have, have, have rough patches. And so that could be challenging to stick with from a behavioral standpoint for some clients. And then similarly, if you're taking it all from stocks, you're likely lowering the expected return of your of your portfolio. So I think they're you know likely for the the right answer for most is you want to at least to some degree source it from both parts of the portfolio. Um, we tend to take it more from the bond side today. Uh, the, the majority coming from there. I think it's it's a function of just our our outlook on the expected returns for fixed income, but also um, the types of alternatives we use. I think have a, have a decent level of, of equity diversification that they offer. So we feel comfortable that we're not necessarily just loading up on a ton of risk in the alt sleeve and, and um, foregoing the diversification that, that, that core bonds would offer. So, um, you know, ultimately that decision is going to depend largely on the sizing of your alt allocation, uh, the types of, of asset classes that you're using uh, in terms of where you think about sourcing it from. But yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's definitely, you know, something that you really need to pay attention to. It's not as, as, necessarily as easy as, oh, just take a pro rata from both sleeves. I think a little bit more work needs to go into it. That That is like the big critical question. And I, I think this is going to be a nice area for us to, you know, collaborate and, and, and follow up on is, you know, if there is this, you know, we, as we've been doing, uh, certainly capital efficiency at the core of the stock and bond portfolio is a big topic we're talking a lot about. We've talked about on this program a few times uh, with Corey and, and others. Uh, and so then the question is like, what is the all-encompassing alternatives funds? And Phil is giving us a playbook here, a little bit in uh, how Savant has looked at it, and and certainly you know there's still now five different sleeves, and he might have multiple managers within the sleeves, you know when when that just becomes complex um, to to operate, and and how do you put that together? I think there'll be rooms to figure out how people do that better. I know we're thinking about different models that try to blend capital efficiency with alts. So I think there'll be some more interesting uh, conversations, Phil, for the future. Yeah, and I think a, a congratulations is owed to you too today. I saw the, the announcement today of the the uh, the crypto index you guys are, are launching with the, our friends at Ritholds and uh, listened to that podcast this morning. And, uh, you know, speaking of alternatives, there's, there's another one that we cover in the book is crypto. But yeah, can Congrats to you there, and, and uh, I'm curious when you and I are going to collaborate on the Huber uh, Wisdom Tree a- Action Figure Index. Uh, action figures. Yeah, I think that's NFTs, well, right? The yeah. NFTs of the action figures, <laughs> that could be an option. I, I, like, I like to think of those as my physical NFTs. There you go. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is definitely interesting. I mean, the crypto is certainly not a low volatility asset class um you know it, it, you right. wouldn't you wouldn't call it that at, at all um you know we did create right. models of crypto where we combine stocks and bonds now we would say uh, well you know we start off with professor siegel and you know he's been saying for years the 60 40 is now the 75 25 that you should be because of his expected returns on bonds being challenged that uh that that you know the 75 25 is a much better allocation so in a 60 40 model we are comfortable we in in one in a, in a model we made available through OnRamp, um, who was also collaborating on this index today, uh, we did a, a 60-40 and funded the 5% from bonds. Um, I don't know. Have you guys thought about crypto? Is that something you guys would do? We're not there yet. We're thinking about it. We're, we're, we're spending time there. I, I, you know, not to, you know, spill the beans on anything, but, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, I think in, in 2022, I think we'll be 
ready to uh, introduce something that our clients can tap into. So, uh, you know, as you're well aware, this has been an area and a category that's been a little challenging for advisors to uh, get comfortable with, not even necessarily, you know, there, there's the investment, you know, sort of thesis component of getting comfortable with, but then there's also sort of the, you know, sort of compliance and regulatory and just operational elements of getting comfortable with it as well. So I think things are, are continuing to evolve there, um, and we're spending a lot of research, you know, man hours are figuring out if it makes sense for us to be there, and if so, what what that's going to look like. So uh, maybe next time we chat, I'll have, have more detail. But uh, nice. yeah, I, I think uh, clearly the demand is, is not going away, and it's, it's an asset class that's here to stay. Chris, did you want to jump in on the insurance income side of this? Well, you know, any anytime uh, you you think about crypto and you listen to obviously the dedicated podcasts that focus on the space, uh, one of one of the big things that sort of ties back to one of the themes here, obviously, and Phil told us not to hold our breath, but Professor Siegel said 4% short-term interest rates. So between the time that we can actually get that in, you know, the standard savings account uh, and right now, uh, all these different sources, we talked about the catastrophe bonds. Obviously, if you're talking about digital assets, uh, you hear of these different ways, whether it's proof of stake and actually staking to secure the network or uh, lending uh, the different uh, crypto assets. Uh, these are other interesting ways you can potentially get income. Yeah, I mean, it's all—it's definitely all worth keeping an eye on. I would say for us, that's a bit too frontier for things we're we're considering for clients at the moment. But obviously, things—you know—things we'll want to, you know, keep an eye on. But you know, every every day we're learning something new and 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 getting more educated on on the crypto landscape. But um, yeah, I, so um, not not to say that wouldn't be something in the future, but uh, time will time will tell. Um, and, and I guess one one more note to to Jeremy here. I, I think you had the most under the radar uh, promotion I ever ever heard of. I, I, did, I never caught the newswire thing that went out about you being promoted to global CIO. I think I just I just noticed that. So I wanted to give you a congratulations there, um, my I friend. I appreciate it. And uh, and Chris here as well. Global had research at the same time, so it's been uh, it's, it's oh, power, yeah. well, power couple here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Phil, where? Where can people find any more the Allocator's Edge? Obviously, in bookstores. Where? What else uh, can they do to follow your work? Yeah, so obviously, you know, for the for the book, Amazon predominantly, but but you know, Barnes and Noble, other places. In terms of where to find me and what I'm writing and thinking about, um, you know, you can. I have a blog uh, called Bips and Pieces, BPS and Pieces, and that's just the the URL to bipsandpieces.com, uh, and that's also my Twitter handle, and I'm pretty active on Twitter as well, and it's just at Bips and Pieces. Phil, thanks so much. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on SiriusXM. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.